Um, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. If you're just joining us, those watching online, we're glad you're here. Um, we're in a series in the book of Acts where we're trekking through the book of Acts. We're almost done, right? Oh, you're excited, huh? No, I'm joking. Um, we're almost done. The title of um, today's sermon is The Gospel Uproots Idolatry or Our Idolatry. Um, we're going to be focused on Acts 19. If you don't have a Bible um, with you this morning, there's a Bible in the pew back in front of you. You can grab that Bible and turn to page 928. Um, if you don't own a Bible, don't have a Bible, and would like a Bible, you can take that Bible. That is our gift to you, because here at the chapel, we study God's Word, we read God's Word, and we participate in God's Word every week. Um, so we're in Acts chapter 19. We're going to track through the entire chapter. Um, the reason why we're tracking through the entire chapter today is because um, what Luke is doing, the author of Luke, he's just giving us um, spurts of information. He's giving us historical details of what's happening in the church or among the people of God or Paul and his companions as the gospel moves forward. So here's where we've been really quickly. We, we know that Paul was in Corinth, right? That, that, that's where he was at before in chapter 18. He's moved on from, from Corinth. He spent about a year and six months in Corinth um, growing the church, implementing and sharing the gospel throughout the city. He goes back to Antioch where he first started his missionary journey. And then now he's in a new city. He's in Ephesus. Um, we know Ephesus. We know it really well because actually he started the church there. If you read Ephesians, that's the church in Ephesus. So when you read Acts 19 and you see some of the stuff that's going on in Acts 19, just remember Paul wrote a letter to the church. Sorry, speech impediment. Paul writes a letter to the church in Ephesus. So there's some correlating ideas that we'll see in both of them. Um, but there's three major events that happen in this chapter. First one is that Paul, as he's preaching the gospel, comes in contact with some of John the Baptist's um, believers. Um, these were people who have heard of the message of John the Baptist, who have believed in the message of John the Baptist. And what was John the Baptist's message of repentance? Someone's coming after me, but repent now. Be in preparation for the one that's coming. So Paul meets these people, and he says, have you guys been baptized? Do you guys know anything about Jesus? And they're like... Uh, no. Um, do you guys know the Holy Spirit? And they, they say, we've never heard of the Holy Spirit. Who, who's this dude? Like, so then Paul tells them about Jesus. He tells them about the Holy Spirit. He prays for them, lays hands, and they come to believe. And, and we know they come to believe because the evidence of their belief is through speaking of tongues and through prophecy. And this is another example of how the gospel is moving forward to the Gentiles, right? This is another baptism of the Spirit among the Gentiles, right? The inclusion of God's people, uh, or excuse me, inclusion of the Gentiles among God's people. Second event that happens that leads us to the third event, and the third event is kind of juicy. Um, the second event. The, the power of the gospel is moving so mightily that, that the city is starting to change. Um, Paul and his companions, his efforts to move the gospel, to create a church, is actually flourishing. We actually see people flourish in the city of, of, of Ephesus because of the ministry of Paul and his companions. Their ministry is so powerful that, um, that 
Paul will pray and people would be healed. In fact, like Paul would touch a handkerchief um, and, and they would use that handkerchief as a means for healing for other people. Um, we're not here to talk about that today. Um, that was for that time and for those people, um, people who try to sell you handkerchiefs on TV, um, change the channel, put it on ESPN, you'll find something more um, informative than that. Um, so, so, that's not, so that's what ended up happening, right? And because the Holy Spirit is moving effectively, a couple of Jewish men, these were traveling evangelists, quote-unquote, and they were exorcists. They, they would cast out demons, evil spirits, from among the Jews. And they decided, because Paul is so popular, because this person, Jesus, that he's preaching, is so effective because of what Paul's doing, right? Like Paul and his miracles are being known among the people, then surely that power is attainable. So what do, what do they do? They decide, well, let's cast out demons. We don't believe in Jesus. We're not Christians, but we'll use the name of Jesus and the name of Paul to cast out demons. So what do they do? They cast out demons. And then this is what happens. This is pretty cool. I would love to preach on this another day, but this is, this is the power of the Spirit, right? Like, this is what, okay, side note, we're going to go on a quick rabbit trail. This is the power that, it, that abides in us in the Spirit of God, right? Like, I'm going to show you. Um, so this is what happens. They start to exercise demons, and then the demons respond to them, and they say, we know who Jesus is. We know who Paul is. But we don't know you. And guess what happens? The demons come out or the demon comes out and he comes over them and the entire city is in awe because of what happened. See, that is the power of the gospel. That is the power of the spirit living in us. Like where we're tempted to believe that the demons and Satan are far more powerful and effective than us, then we ought to remember, no, 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 that the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit in us is far greater and effective than the principalities of this world. Right, so, so when we're tempted to feel, right, that, that, that evilness and darkness has had his victory on us, we ought to remember that when we see in the New Testament, in every book of the Bible, the gospel and the spirit of God transform the lives of people and also see that the kingdom of darkness keeps moving back. The kingdom of darkness is not moving forward, it's moving back. That's the power that we see. That's our rabbit trail for this morning. Yeah, we can end it right there, right? And the story is so, so that's the second event, third event. Because the gospel is so effective, before, because the gospel is moving forward, the church is growing in Ephesus. People feel threatened by the gospel. People feel threatened by, by Paul's influence in the city. And it dawned on me when I was reading this chapter, Acts 19, it dawned on me this profound idea, I'm gonna give you something profound. You ready to take notes? This is profound. Y'all ready? I'm about to spit some fire today, as the youngsters say. Like, this is, check this out. This is profound. This is, this is profound. You're laughing. This is profound. Serious. Words of wisdom about to flow out of my mouth like milk and honey. I'm joking. Nothing has changed. When I read Acts 19, in fact, when I read every single verse in the New Testament, you know what I notice? Nothing has changed. There's nothing new happening. It's the same thing. The same thing that we see in the Old Testament, the same thing that we see in the New Testament is the same thing that we see today. And what do we see? 
Opposition. What do we see? Adversity. What do we see? The church trying to move forward. I sometimes, honestly, sometimes I feel like, like, I feel like every time the church or every time like the universal church, we move forward, or even our church, like we take one step forward, sometimes I feel like the influences of the culture and our world and sin and death like makes us take two steps back. Sometimes I feel that way. I'm not saying that's true, because it's not true. It's the feeling that I have. But, but what I notice is that the same things that happen in the book of Acts are happening now. So when we read Acts 19, we're going to see nothing has changed, that there are people, organizations, there are influences, ideas, ideology that are always going to oppose the church and its people. The church is always going to face adversity. And I'm not talking about I'm having a bad day or I'm having a bad week. I'm not talking about the puppy died this week. I'm talking about real things that are happening. The world and the culture trying to influence inside the church, trying to make us believe and do things that are not biblical. What I'm talking about is true warfare where the kingdom of, of, of Satan and the kingdom and principalities of darkness are trying to take over and influence us in ways that we don't even realize. And the way they do it is through idolatry. Right? Because, because we're not, first of all, we're not the targets, right? Like the influence of sin and death, the influences of, of Satan and his demons is not us. It's him. So what do they want to do, right? Like, they want to hurt him. So how are they going to hurt God? Because they know they can't physically hurt him. How are they going to hurt him? Let's go after the very thing that he loves the most in the entire universe. Let's go after them. Let's make him hurt. Because when the way we're going to get him to hurt is to see them, to see them destroyed, to see them perishing, to see them die, to see them die physically, spiritually, mentally. Like, let's go after the thing that he cares for the most. It's like, it's like a parent who sees their children and their children are hurting, right? What the, like, you see it physically in the parents. They're hurting, why? Because their child is hurting. That's, that's the influence of the culture and influence of the world and influence of the principalities to hurt us. But the way, see, it's not just like, it's not just like, hey, we're, we're going to hurt them physically. You know, you know how they're going to hurt us? Through our idolatry. That, that's how we're going to be affected. It's, it's to take away the worship of God and Yahweh and his son Jesus and to, to bring that worship to something or someone that we believe is more important than him. That's how we get hurt. And that's what we're going to see. So look at Acts chapter 19. Acts 19, verse 23, that's what we'll start. I went on a little rabbit trail, so I don't know if we'll finish, but we'll find out. All right, 23. And about, and about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Let's pause for a second. What is the way? The way is um, now a new title for the church. Um, it's just to communicate um, the people of God in that city, um, Christians who have come to Jesus, right? So the way they call Christians in this, in this city and many parts of that area are the way, the people of the way. So that's what he's referring to here. Luke, verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together. So, so, 
what do we know? Like this is, this is, our, this is a, a guy who, who, whose business is to build shrines and statues for the goddess Artemis. And, and now he decided, well, I'm gonna gather all the people who are part of that cultic practice who, who built those shrines, like other silversmiths, other people who, who help other people worship Artemis, right? So he's bringing all the tradesmen together and he's gonna have a little chat. And what does he say in verse 25? He says, man, you know that from this business we have, we have our wealth. Right, so what is he saying here? He's saying, well, you know how we're making money. We're making money off of the worship of Artemis. And look at verse 26, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this is modern-day Turkey. So if you're, if you're thinking about modern-day map, um, Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. So when they say Asia, they're talking about modern-day Turkey. And you see and hear not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many of people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed of her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. What is he saying here? He's saying, this guy, Paul, the people of the way, are threatening our lifestyle and our wealth. One. Notice that's the first thing that he says. Doesn't seem like he's concerned about like, hey, we have a moral and ethical dilemma in our city. We firmly believe in the worship of the goddess Artemis, and there are people who are going to try to rob us from that opportunity. No, that's not what he says first. He first says, no, no, no. You know how much money we make from this business, and because of this business, we are very wealthy and have a good lifestyle, but this guy says, hey, the things that we're creating are not actually gods. You can't be a god if you're being crafted by, by hands. And then they say, well, then we're, we're, we're worried about the worship of Artemis. Who is Artemis? Artemis is the goddess of, of wild animals, the goddess of chastity, the goddess of nature, of game, and the whole city worshiped this goddess, right? The, the equivalent um, in the Roman uh, mythology is Diana. So if your name is Diana, you're welcome. JK. Um, that, that, so that's what they worship, right? But he's, he's not concerned about the true worship of Artemis. He's concerned about the wealth and lifestyle and prosperity of their own lives. That's his primary concern. I think that's true for us today, right? Like, that's what idolatry tells us. Like, idolatry tells us that we ought to be concerned with the things that we have, the things that we possess, the things that we own. Like, idolatry tells us those things are very important, and when, when those things are threatened by something else, we have to do everything in our power to do what? Hold on to it. That's what, that's what the, actually the gospel does, right? The gospel says, hey, listen, you, excuse me, the gospel doesn't say that. The gospel says the opposite of that, that, that you ought not to hold on to those things. You ought to let it go. 
Anything that you worship, anything where your time and energy is devoted to that is not God or the purposes of God, like anything in your life, everything in your mind, in your heart, whatever stirs your affection, if it's more important than the affections that go to God, then it's become an idol. And in the way, in the way our idols are exposed in our hearts and in our minds is through the gospel. Why? Because the gospel exposes the idolatry in our hearts. The gospel exposes our idolatry. That, that is what Luke's showing us in this passage, right? Like, Luke, was he, what's he, what he is doing in this passage is exposing the power of sin and death in our lives. And, and what he's saying is that the transformational power of the gospel, right, is far more powerful than idolatry, that it can change the hearts and minds of man. That's what he's saying. That what stirs our affections, what, what, what gives us value and worth and purpose in our minds and in our life, ought to be God, but when it's not God, it's something else, but there's power to overcome that, right? And that's the beauty of the gospel, that it exposes our idolatry. And you're probably sitting in this room, you're like, no, 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 I'm not Demetrius. I'm not those tradesmen. I don't worship idols. I'm a Christian. I'm a good Christian. I read my Bible every day. I do devotionals every single day. I'm part of an ABF. I'm part of a small group. I go to church every Sunday, or at least I try to go to every church every Sunday. Like, I don't have any idols in my life. And I'm going to say to you, yes, you do. We all got them. They just manifest differently because we look at the Bible and we say, oh, these people worship gods. They worship statues. Like the Old Testament, they worship statues and gods. Not us today. We don't do that. No, yes, we do. We may not make sacrifices. We, we may not actually go to little statues to, to worship and pray, but in our hearts, we have. We have created idols. In our lifestyle, we have, right? We've created idols. What's, what's your idol? What's the thing that you want the most that you're willing to give up everything, even your faith, to get it? What, what's that thing? See, for Demetrius and the tradesmen, it was their lifestyle. It was their wealth. Is that, is that you? I mean, let's be honest, right? Like, can we be honest for about five seconds? Yes? All right. We're a church in the city. Yeah. The building is in the city. And the vast majority of us don't live in the city. We live in the burbs, suburbs. And there are things that come with that. The, the American culture tells us, right, that wealth, power, prosperity, the house, the cars, the nice plot of land, the nice family put together is the thing that is most important to achieve. And and the, the best place to show that is in the burbs. And now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't live in the burbs. Don't get me wrong. God bless you. That, that's not what I'm saying at all. It's not, I'm not saying it's a sin to live in the burbs. But oftentimes, the message that we often receive from the things that we see around us in our lifestyle tells us, right, that, that the ultimate thing that we have to do and obtain is a good lifestyle and wealth. And we have to do everything in our power to keep it and hold on to it. Because we've got to show everybody that we've made it. And especially if we grew up poor or we grew up middle class, we got to show the rest of the world, hey, we, we made it out. That's what, what's being communicated to us, right? 
And if we're not careful, we can fall into the trap in, of being like Demetrius and the tradesman and thinking, right, that, that, that what's most important for us is our earthly possessions. And still be a Christian, right? Like, I'm not saying Demetrius and the tradesmen are Christian. They're not. But we can look at this passage and say, oh, no, that's not me. But, but there's a warning in this passage, right? Like, it's easy for us to look at Demetrius and the tradesmen and say, these people are wrong and sinful, which is true, right? Because that's what the gospel does. The, the power of the gospel exposes not only the idolatry in our hearts, but the power of the gospel exposes the idolatry of other people. Right? That's the beauty about the gospel that we, actually, I think it's a benefit for us. Because when we can see the idolatry of other people, it gives us an opportunity to love and care for and speak into that. Right? To, like, if, they're, if they, what they're struggling with is security and comfort and pleasures, then we can offer them Jesus who says, listen, temporary happiness is only found in possession and in wealth, but eternal joy is found in Jesus. Like, we can speak into that, like people who struggle with influence and power and saying, hey, listen, like the greatest power and the greatest influence you will ever see in your life is Jesus. You ought to find that in him for his glory and his honor, not for your selfish gain. So that's the beauty of seeing, seeing the idols of other people's hearts, but we can be tempted to view them as the others and not view ourselves as the people who could be influenced by idols. We all got idols in this room. Look at me. You got an idol. And for many of us, it's deep-seated in our hearts. It's taken root. It's influenced the way we think, the way we act, the way we behave, and what we believe. And unless you allow the gospel to expose that in your heart and then to root it out, then you will continue to live a life, right, that's enslaved to something or someone, right? This is the truth about relationships. When you find your identity in relationships, when you find your identity in love, like Campus Focus is going up through a beautiful series. If you get a chance to listen to some of Dan's sermons, they're going through a series on lesser gods, this idea of idolatry, right? The idolatry of, like, love, sex, and... Some other things, there's like three others, but I forget, right? Like, why? Because we're all affected by it. And our world has told us that we're not affected by it. We have told ourselves, we've convinced ourselves, just because we're Christians, we're not affected by idols, but we are. Because many of us won't give up the very thing that God is calling us to give up. We're not willing to like think differently or be informed by scripture because we're so desperate to hold on to the thing that God, that we believe that is good and right for us. And what we see in this passage, right, is that Luke is telling us, be careful. Though they may be not, they're not Christians, you might be tempted to fall back. You might be tempted to fall back into a pattern of sin. And it's amazing to me in this passage because, like, think about all the good things that the gospel has done for people and can do for people. And Demetrius, right, in the tradesman cannot see that what's better for them is to trust and hope in Jesus. But what they place their hope and trust in is in possessions. They can't let it go. They're not willing to let that go because, because they've made that an idol. I'm reminded of a story I've told you this before. I went on a mission trip. Uh, sorry, I can't talk. I went on a mission trip this past June. I took a bunch of high schoolers with us. 
And if you know, we partnered up with Mission House, and Mission House is an organization that plants churches in little villages. And this, is one of, one of, this wasn't one of those like, oh, feel good mission trips. It's not like, oh, you, like, we flew into Cancun, but it wasn't like, oh, we're gonna spend a week in Cancun. It's like, no, we're gonna fly into Cancun, but drive three hours inland and stay in a compound where there might be water, there might be electricity, and the power might go out, and we might go three days without electricity. That's exactly what happened. Um, we didn't have power for about two or three days, I think, or about two days, or running water. Think about that, high schoolers who haven't bathed for two days in 100-degree weather, high humidity. Yeah. Anyway, that was a little tangent. Um, Mission House hires translators to come with us, and the translators do exactly that, right? Like they translate from Spanish to English, and, or from English to Spanish, because we go door to door, knocking on people's houses, and sharing the gospel, and that's what the students did. And you get to know the translators, because they're friendly, they're either like upperclassmen in high school, or they're like college student age. And you get to know them because they're with you all the time. They get on the bus with you. We drive 30 minutes to the village. We drive back. They stay with us and, and whatnot. And we were talking to one of the translators in the van. And he showed a picture to some of the girls uh, of his girlfriend. And the girls were like, oh, my gosh, she's so pretty. You guys look so cute. Oh, my gosh, you were able to get her? Like, she's like a 10 and you're like a 5. And it's like... <laughs> and then... Um, Praise God that the Spirit was doing in our, something in our students that they would ask, like, are you a Christian? Like, you come, translate with us, you hear the gospel over and over again, like, do you believe? And one of the translators said, and this is the one with the girlfriend, he said, um, I kind of do, but I don't. And then one of the girls in our group, and if you know who I'm talking about, like, she... We love her because she's the one that's the most daring out of the group. Um, she's the one that says whatever's on her mind. And then I think he said something to the fact of, um, I, I don't think I'm ready to be a Christian. Because they were asking him, telling him about Jesus, and he's like heard about Jesus. He's done this before. He's translated a couple times. But he's like, I'm not ready. And the girl goes like, I'm going to do a good impression of her, I think. She's like, what you mean you're not ready? Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> and then he gets worked up because he's like, you know, she has a, a strong personality. And he's like, I'm not, essentially what he's saying, I'm not putting words in his mouth. I, this is a summation of what he said. I, I'm not ready to give up some of the stuff that I'm, I'm wanting to do. I'm, I'm wanting to experience life more and I'm still investigating, right? Like, you know what that's code for, right? <laughs> It's code for, like, I'm not ready to give up sin. That's what's happening here, right? They are aware of the better thing. They know the better thing, and yet they're not willing to succumb or submit to the better thing. They'd rather hold on to the temporary thing, the thing that gives them value, not realizing that the the author and perfecter of our faith has given them value and purpose. Right? Like, that's what's happening in our world today. Our world believes, right, that, that the better thing is to hold on to whatever gives them purpose and meaning, whether it's possessions or value. 
Our world and our culture believes, right, that Jesus is not the answer. He's not better because you have to give up everything. And little do they know that um, we're all reminded of, right, the story of the young rich ruler. He comes to Jesus and says, I want to I follow you. And he says, all right, give it up. Give it all up. He says, no, I can't. Who's the young rich ruler? It's the world. The young rich ruler is a representation of the world and our culture that says, I'm not willing to give it up. How sad it is that we live in a world that's not ready to give it up. And then I think of that passage, right? Think of the passage that says, right? And it's a sad passage, right? Because it's like, you gain the whole world. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world and then what? To lose his soul. That is the reality of our world. That is the reality of many people we know in this world. They're not willing to give up their idols. And, and here's why they're not willing to give up their idols, um, which is also a warning to us, right? This is a warning to us to see why they're not willing to give up their idols, to see why it's hard for us, if we struggle with idols in our hearts and our minds, why it's hard to get up, because there's two things. It's two things. The first one is because idols are deceitful. Idols are deceitful. Idols make us think. Idols, idols make us believe, right, that, that the ultimate thing is not Jesus, and the ultimate thing is the thing that we ought to hold on to. And we actually see that in this passage, because in a couple of verses, you know what happens? The entire group of tradesmen get up in a tizzy, and now they want to start a riot. So they get up, they get the entire city in an uproar. And, and they're so confused at what's going on. They have no clue what's going on. You know why? Because idols are deceitful. Idols will make us do things that are not rational. Idols will make us behave in a certain way that are not meaningful. Like if, if, if your idol is a relationship or a person, then you're gonna do everything in your power to gratify that person and you're willing to give up your moral and values and ethics so what? You can bow down at the knee at that person's relationship and then when they leave you, you're destroyed. And that's the problem that's happening with our generation now. They idolize relationships because they find their identity in relationships and little do they know that the relationship is a foot pressed on their neck because it's making them bow down. That is the power of idolatry. It makes you do things that are not rational. And if you don't see it, you're gonna succumb to it. Trust me, I'm telling you from personal experiences. I even know what my idols are. And I find myself day in and day out trying to kill the old person in me that's dying to come out and to be captivated by my idolatry. The second thing that we see in this passage, the reason why they can't, the reason why they can't see, right, the, what idolatry is doing, the reason why this passage is a warning to us is because idolatry is misleading. It doesn't lead us and guide us to holiness. It doesn't lead us and guide us to Jesus. It leads us away from Jesus. Idolatry leads us away from Jesus. Because its ultimate goal is for you to worship it and not the creator. 
That's what Romans says, right? They exchange the truth for a lie. They worship the creative thing and not worship the creator. That's what idolatry does. We all have idolatry in our hearts. The question is, do you know yours and are you willing to put it to death? Are you willing to allow the gospel to expose it in your own hearts? And it was misleading to them and deceitful, right? Like they pulled and dragged out a bunch of Christians and brought them into a theater and, and they were gonna start a riot. And then they said, we don't know what's going on. We have no clue why we're doing this, but we know, right, that we really care for our idolatry, really care for, the, for, the, for, for, for Artemis. Like, and we're gonna do everything that we can to make sure that Artemis is lifted up high. And, and many of them were like, oh, I don't know. Why? Because that's what idolatry does to us. That's what greed does to us, right? Like, like if we're struggling with security and possession and lifestyle and, and, and we're struggling with, with selfish, selfishness and greed, right? Like we ought to remember that it's going to make us do things that we ought not to do. And I don't know where your idol is, but evaluate your own heart. Like, what are you doing that's out of boundaries of God's will and God's word? That's your idolatry. Lastly, what if you're here in this room and you're struggling? You're like, well, I'm not Demetrius. I'm a Christian, but, but you do struggle with, like, security, comfort, lifestyle, possessions. Here, here's a quick remedy for you. You want to know what the remedy is for, like, greed and selfishness if you find yourself like, oh, that's me. Like, I, I can identify with Demetrius um, and the tradesmen. Like, this, this is the remedy, generosity. Give it away. Now, we do it in wisdom. We're not here to like, I'm not here to say, hey, go give up everything and go live in a little hut and quit your job. No, no, what I'm saying is that God has given you everything in your life as a stewardship. Manage it well. And if you, in your heart and your mind, struggle with, with, with generosity, try to be generous, right? Like be generous with your time, your energy, your resources in the church and outside the church and watch God do something new in your heart because when we take the posture of generosity for people who struggle with greed and selfishness, then what we say, it leads us to Jesus and it says, I'm gonna trust you and only you whether I have it or I don't. So that's a quick, practical way. Like, if you find yourself identifying in this passage with greed, be generous. But, but be wise with it. Don't just like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give everything. No, no, do it. Do it that, in a way that honors God. Here, here's the last point. This is, not, this is a good point. Ready? This is the last point. The last point is that the gospel uproots our idolatry. And that, and that is a beautiful testimony because at the end of the chapter, we don't actually see anyone come to faith afterwards. But, but here's the gospel truth that we do see in this passage. The gospel truth is that you, you have the opportunity, you have the ability in you, given to you by the Spirit from his power to overcome your idolatry. And the way that happens is about allowing the gospel to inform your mind and to cultivate feelings and thoughts that, that lead you to Jesus. That's the beauty of the story, right? Like, like, there isn't a happy ending in Acts chapter 19, but the happy ending for us is, right, that we know that, that the power to overcome sin and death, the power to defeat our idolatry, whatever it is, can be uprooted and removed by the power of the gospel. The only thing you have to do is believe and obey. 
You, you have to believe and obey. Believe that God can do it and obey him in how to do it. That's the beauty this morning, amen? That, that the gospel can radically shape the way we think and feel, especially in a world that tells us how to feel and think. That's the beauty of what God has done for you and me, that he radically takes everything in us, in our hearts, in our minds, in our actions, and he redeems it for his honor and glory, right? Like, he looks down on us by the power of his spirit in us. He says, every bad mistake, I'm going to redeem it because I have done a work that you cannot do in yourself. I've done it through Jesus Christ, and I'm going to do it in you and through you. Just watch me do it and obey. But you got to be willing to give up the idols. What's your idol? What, what's the thing that you have knelt down to and, and worship? We've seen one example, greed, selfishness, security, comfort. It, what, what's yours? Is it relationships? Is, is it money? Is it respect? Is it honor? What's the thing that you're struggling with? Let the gospel uproot it so that you can worship God most clearly. You can worship God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. Amen? Let's pray. God, search us, O oh Lord. Every part of us. God, search every thought we've ever had. Search every feeling we've ever had. Search every action we've ever committed. And God, would you, by the power of your spirit, convict us in a way that only glorifies your son. Father God, in the name of Jesus, let your word be true and everything else a lie in us. That we can believe in you, trust in you, and that we can lay down our idols. Why don't you take just 30 seconds in your heart and, and ask the Lord, Lord, search me. Ask him, what are your idols? God, we surrender all to you, our hearts and minds, our actions, for the honor and glory of your son Jesus, not for our name or our fame or our good deeds, but for the name of Jesus Christ who's done it all for us. We pray this in Christ's name and the people of God say. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.